Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Women in Sustainability Design the Future podcast. This is Karen Becker from Acuity Brands, and we've created this podcast to elevate the voices of women driving sustainable practices in the built environment. We hope you find their stories inspirational and helpful to the work that you do. The hosts for these conversations are industry veterans Lindsay Baker and Kira Gould. Let's get started. Hi, everyone. Thanks so much for joining us. We are so excited for our first guest episode today. Uh, this week, we are so pleased to have with us Sarah Neff, who is the Senior Vice President of Sustainability for Kilroy Realty. Um, I've been following Sarah forever. I'm so excited to have her here. Welcome, Sarah. Thank you so much for having me. I have been following you for many years, so it's delightful <laughs> to be able to be on a podcast together. <laughs> Awesome. Well, um, and we have Kira here, my amazing co-host. Hey, Kira. Hello, everyone. So glad to have you, Sarah. Uh, yeah. Hello. This is going to be fun. Uh, Sarah, I, I want to start off by telling the audience that when we first started thinking about this podcast, Sarah was at the very top of our list, um, collectively, I think, because um, you just have such a fun and wonderful, eloquent way of talking about what's going on in our movement, in our industry, um, and you also seem to be thinking about all the things. And so it's just going to be so much fun to talk to you today. We have a bunch of questions and thoughts and hopefully just a um, good time to check in. We are, all of us, I guess, in week two of our uh, self-quarantining here in California, so uh, time for a little a little kiki to ease the the uh, social isolation. Sarah, how how is how are things in LA? How are you feeling about all of this? Yeah, things are okay here. Um, I have two little girls, uh, so we are figuring out homeschooling, and my husband and I both work full time, so it's definitely um, a new paradigm. But obviously. You know, given how things could be, we feel very lucky that we're all healthy and, um, you know, there are um, some bright spots in terms of spending more time with each other. And um, so it's going okay so far. I'm not sure how I'm going to feel maybe eight weeks to two, three months from now, but we'll, <laughs> we'll see. Yeah, it's very surreal knowing that people are going to be listening to this podcast a few weeks in the future when things will be known that we don't know now. I kind of yeah, think sure. about that, but hopefully yeah. a little time capsule. Well, all right, let's get started. Um, Sarah, the first thing we would love to hear you talk about is just a little bit about how and why you chose to join the world of green building, um, mm -hmm. how, how you ended up in it, and just your story. Well, like everybody, it was totally straightforward, and I had planned this since I was five. Um, no, so <laughs> I... Um, <laughs> So after college, um, I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do. I actually have a computer science background, um, and I managed to graduate right during the dot-com crash. Um, and so, um, yeah, I wandered a while, lived for England for a while, lived in India, um, came back and worked for a Shakespeare nonprofit, um, and then ended up in entertainment here in LA. Um, I'm married to a television writer, and after three pretty good years actually in television I just woke up one morning and I, and I basically got to the point of how many more shows about white people in New York am I going to work on before I die um, and so uh, I was just not satisfied with the work I was doing and uh, a friend from my undergrad had sort of done the same thing graduated herself from Hollywood and gone into sustainability 
And so uh, I, I decided to go do that. So I went to business school um, and uh, with a focus on social enterprise, you know, did it as much as I could do it, president of the club, planning social enterprise trips to Argentina and wherever. Um, and then graduated and ended up um, at Kilroy um, and have been doing sustainable real estate at Kilroy uh, ever since. And that was back in 2010. So I'm coming up on my decade anniversary. Wow. That is very impressive. Uh, yeah. So many, I mean, I'm honestly sometimes jealous of people who like, you know, wound up in it and did a lot of cool stuff before. So uh, way yeah. to go. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Sarah, what, what do you think people should know who might be interested in entering that side of the green building, green building arena, like what they should be interested in or, or good at or, or thinking about if they're yeah, absolutely. Emulate um, some part of your path. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I obviously have the bias of coming from a business background, but the economics for green are never better. I mean, so again, in our world of the coronavirus type capsule, we all sort of worry what the focus on sustainability is going to be now that there are is a very pressing global pandemic. But um, the the economics around um, everything uh, sustainability are just so good. Now, um, and I think people who can speak that language are highly needed. Um, so the advice would be to figure out how to, how, how to make the money side work. I think we have a whole lot of really great designers and architects, and even there's a growing cadre of real estate owners, um, but those who know how to put um, the right kind of money into the right kind of deal to get it over the finish line, I think um, we need more of those folks. And so that's what I'd recommend is really, um, everybody wants to save the world, but you can save the world a lot faster if you can make it make business sense. That was my entire reason for going to business school and what I 100% focus on at Kilroy. So I'd, yeah, I would say yes, understand the business side. Yeah, I think that's so true. I've noticed that over the course of my career that understanding the money, I think for a lot of us, especially if you come from maybe more of a liberal arts or a design background or something like that, economics, finance, just the money stuff, uh, can be a little intimidating to understand what people mean when they use some of those terms. And it can really hold you back in a lot of ways, whether it's, you know, just simple stuff around how to uh, run an effective business, but also real estate is such an incredibly um, difficult arena to understand from a financial perspective, you know? So if you kind of don't engage with that, it, it limits you. It seems like you've done a lot to really understand like what's really making the industry tick in that way. How does real estate really get financed and where does the money come from and where are the interesting creative ways to, to get money from? Um, yeah. If you, if you don't, if you're not able to make the business case and I want to take a giant asterisk about business cases and why we need to maybe worry about them a little less. Um, but you know, if you can't speak to the money side of the equation, um, then you're going to end up being peripheral to a company's right. operations. If you want to um, really be part of standard business practices, you have to be able to talk business. But that, and I don't want to give the impression that's what my big asterisk was, that everything you do has to have um, an ROI or return on investment. I think those of us in sustainability really did ourselves a disservice in our early years proving that every time we sneezed, the company mm -hmm. saved money. And now that we're into more complex stuff like climate change scenario analysis and air quality testing and supply chain investigation, all these things that don't aren't so measurable in terms of 
these dollars save for these dollars in, um, you know, I think it's important to, to balance that to show, okay, we, we can maybe speak in terms of higher rental rates and then that goes into, you know, net operating income or whatever. But I think it's important to speak the language, but not get so caught up um, in the money that then you train everybody that you work with to always expect, you know, dollar signs from you. I think we don't ask the marketing team to do that. We don't ask, we don't go to them and say, what was the ROI on that campaign you just did? No, we know marketing's important and we invest in it. You know, we don't, we don't do that to like my in-house design team. So we don't need to have everything have an ROI, but you definitely need to be able to speak to it. Yeah. Yeah. I feel that it's like we, for, for a good portion of this early phase of our movement we were so eager to make sure the world understood that we can in fact save money that when people ask us what the payback is for a thing we sort of jump to explain what that is rather than saying you know actually it's also just the thing that's going to save the planet so right. <laughs> that's let, let's start with that and then we always I, I i'm a fan of kind of starting with the you know with the with the moral and scientific imperative and then working your way back to, oh, and also it's going to be good. Yeah. Financial, you know. the, the example I use these days when somebody's like, why are we paying for a FitWell certification or something is I'm like, great. What's the ROI on the holiday decorations in the lobby every year? Um, yeah, exactly. Right. Because yeah. the thing is, we know it's important. It's not, it doesn't actually mean to be flippant um, during the last recession. Um, you know, to save on operating expenses, Killer didn't have uh, the holiday decorations one year and the tenants were really upset and ISM management got tons of complaints about it. So we know that there was value there, right? Like we knew it was important to people and it was valued, but it didn't have a tangible dollar sign associated with it. And I think a, a good chunk of what we do falls into that category. Obviously not all, there's a lot of money there too, but yeah, some of it's like Christmas decorations. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> I, I love that. It's a good story. Um, okay. So Here's may, hopefully an easy one, but maybe a hard one. What are you most proud of accomplishing in your work life? Right. I think the, let's put this into larger context. The real estate industry has been really slow to join the global climate conversation. Um, and my main goal for the last however many years has been to both get the environmental world to realize that real estate needs to be at the table um, and then also to get real estate to want to be at the table, sort of merging those two, because when we look at, you know, for example, how the global reporting index standard for how you do your sustainability reporting is written, it is very much not written with real estate in mind. I mean, Carbon Disclosure Project is only this year having a really very aligned real estate module. Um, and yet real estate is somewhere, you know, around in the in the in the double digits of contributing to climate change. And so I found that very frustrating. So the major thing that we did to try to sort of make a splash about it was declare that we would achieve carbon neutral operations um, at the end of this year. Um, and then we didn't just sort of put out a press release. Um, I actually had my CEO make this announcement at the Global Climate Action Summit in 2018. Um, which was like a very major world forum. I mean, presidents of countries were flying in for it um, to, and everybody's making their carbon commitments. And we were the only ones from American real estate there. And all, one of only two from real estate around the world, there was like a developer from Dubai who was there too. And that was about it, which was just so infuriating <laughs> because yeah. uh, real estate is such a giant chunk of the, um, of, of the global climate problem and yet nobody is seeing it. And so I'm really proud that we, I got us to make the climate, uh, the carbon neutral declaration. And I'm really happy that 
my company was okay with us doing it, with putting all the contracts together to actually make it happen, um, and then being so bold about how we were talking about it. Yeah, I wanted to say I was so impressed by that. And it was, it was, for me, it helped me with like a bit of a light bulb going off because I had, I mean, my, well, we talked about this in the first episode, but I had gone from being in a, in the green building or in the real estate sector exclusively to sort of a broadening of horizons into the corporate world, into the, into, into really the larger climate movement again from, you know, for a long time, just been really focused on the buildings industry. And so I noticed, especially at things like the Global Climate Action Summit, that the rest of the businesses of the world talk about the climate challenge in a different way than the building industry does. And it seems to have something to do with the fact that the building industry set up its own rules and whether it's buildings <laughs> or real estate, however we want to define that. Um, and you guys were some of the only building industry people who showed up for this global commitment and sort of set of rules and expectations that companies were setting for themselves. Um, and, and that I'm just internally grateful for because I think it's providing, I hope it's providing a model for how other, uh, how other businesses in the building sector can and should get involved. I'm wondering if, you, if you've thought about what it takes for other companies. Do you, do you think that the Kilroy is a good example uh, of how other real estate companies or building industry companies can uh, step up for the climate fight? Uh, if so, like what are steps that people can take? Right, and I, and I just wanna be clear that I definitely um, stand on the backs of giants. So maybe let's just, let me just take like 30 seconds to explain how we're making this claim and what exactly we're claiming to, to do. So I'm assuming there's a lot of climate nerds on this podcast. So what I am declaring that I will achieve is scope one and scope two market-based carbon neutrality. Um, so that's all of the fuels burned in uh, the properties where we control the utilities and all the electricity in those properties. So that's what's being offset. Um, so, and I, and to accomplish that, um, I just want to be really clear that I definitely stand on the backs of giants. So basically what had been happening, and it had really started with the data center industry. And so I really thank my colleagues there um, at Digital Realty and um, at Iron Mountain, especially for just so much help um, with uh, my own deals. Um, but because they use so much power, I mean, they just, they just use so much power that they were getting a lot of pressure from the green NGO industry to do something about it. Um, and you can't exactly just pick up your data center and move it to a state with cleaner power. And so the solution was um, these offsite power purchase agreements where because of your you know, contractual and financial intervention, more renewables are being added to the grid to um, offset the the power that you're you know consuming on site, um, and so they had been doing those deals for a bit, and I saw the opportunity to say like, hey, like I'm not a data center company, like my my power use is a fraction of theirs. I bet I could get this all done in a single deal. Um, so that's what we did. So they you know those guys were super duper helpful in how I set this up. But the point is. But there's realist, many real estate companies smaller than us, right, who can absolutely do the same thing. I mean, for me right now, um, we have, we were told at the end of 2019 that we had one decade to solve climate change, um, which is 120 months. And we're already, at, as of this recording, at the end of March. So we're already, we've already lost three months already. 
Um, so we really do not have very much time. And so I really want the real estate company to say, yes, I can do it all. And I could do it all in the next year, 12 months, 18 months, you know, 18 months is plenty. Um, depending on the size of your company to get yourself to carbon neutrality, there isn't a reason to wait. What gets crazily frustrating for me is people who feel like they have to be quote, done with energy efficiency and quote, done with putting in all the onsite renewables that they can before they look off site. And to me, it's like, we have to do it all at the same time. We have to push for onsite energy efficiency constantly, shove in the renewables everywhere we can, but also simultaneously, not after, but at the same time, go do, um, you know, add enough power to the grid that the grid gets greener. Um, and so I think there is no reason why anybody should be waiting. Everybody can do this now. And one of the things that's actually been great is we've seen a couple competitors now um, make the same claim. So clearly the work that we did there is having an impact in the market. Um, and I'm really excited to, uh, to see other folks stepping up and doing the same thing. Yeah, I, from a communication standpoint, I have to say that the way that you presented it and the model in the industry as you know, an industry model that you guys are being right now is really powerful. It's just, it's fantastic. And, and it's, it, it is a learning model for the other, you know, for other companies. Um, but it's also just an example of what you were referencing before the sort of trying to push real estate in, but also get the pull from the climate world to, to recognize real estate's role. I mean, I think that combination is so important. Thank you. Yeah, and if anybody's curious sort of how the numbers break down, um, since 2010, um, on a like-for-like -like basis, we've reduced energy use in the portfolio about it's 17.3%, and our on-site installed renewables is a whopping 0.5%, although I got those deals. Um, I'm like 10 years older for having negotiated those deals and getting them up and running. And so the other basically like 82-ish percent is um, accomplished through the offsite deal. And I'm not um, like ashamed or embarrassed of that. We, you have to do on-site work. We're not going to get every single existing building to net zero in time to avoid the worst impacts of climate change. It's just not happening. Um, and so that's one of the reasons that I really think we, we need to just sort of, we have to, we have to basically um, uh, figure out where the, where the juice is worth the squeeze. I mean, I've, I've code, I go to a lot of green building conferences, or I did before this virus, and I would hear these great existing building retrofit case studies. And I remember somebody getting on stage, and this is a person with a graduate degree and probably a very high hourly billing, billing rate saying, and yes, we put this 11 kW solar array on the roof of this building. And I just had a complete internal temper tantrum because I know how much work an 11 kW solar array is. It is the same amount of work as a solar array that's 100 kW or a megawatt, right? I mean, it's all the same amount of contracts, interconnection agreements, and structural design and all this stuff for 11 kW. That's going to, you know, power the, like, what lights in the mechanical room. It's nothing. And I'm just like, we don't have time. We do not have time. These very, very smart people to be spending their time on that kind of thing. You have to kind of go do the biggest bang for buck thing um, immediately. So I hope we've um, sort of shown a pathway to doing it. And it's also been interesting talking to the NGO community because they definitely, look, I, I get that on-site efficiency is better than off-site renewables. I understand that. So like they're very uncomfortable saying like, yeah, I do it all at the same time. And I think they're very much in the sort of waterfall. Okay. You know, on-site energy efficiency, then on-site renewables, then off-site and getting them around the idea of like, no, we're going to do all at the same time has also been an educational thing, but I think it's worked well in both camps, both 
the rest of the real estate community and then to the environmental and geo community. Yeah, I feel like we, we've we uh, gotten a little bit tripped up within our world on the question of what is best versus what needs to happen right now, you right. know? And, and so what you're speaking to, I totally agree with that um, it would be great to have all the time in the world to first get a really accurate baseline and then start your efficiency programs and then, you know, squeeze all the water out of that stone and then move on to your on-site stuff and then move on, you know, it, but like it's the, the house is on fire. Yeah. Like we're all going to die. Like we really <laughs> have to get on this. Yeah. And I, and I just want to say, I mean, I think you've proven and we all believe that it, the the measurement has to happen. It doesn't mean that you don't do the measurement. You don't do the efficiency work. You absolutely have to do this stuff. Um, but I think we just all need to know that that um, it doesn't necessarily come before other actions that you take for the climate. No, and it's also to our earlier um, discussion. It's also all you know good for the bottom line. Everything that we're doing on this on this uh in, in this carbon reduction um work is all making us money right i mean the on-site efficiency reduces operating costs the on-site solar generates rent the off-site solar should make us quite a bit so none of this doesn't make business sense there's a lot of double negatives it all makes business sense <laughs> totally sarah you mentioned that supply chain was something that you've been mm -hmm. thinking about can you talk a little bit about that yeah, real estate is not, uh, as an industry, particularly good at understanding what the environmental and social impacts are across the supply chain. Um, and one of the things I hope people take from this podcast is how collaborative those of us in sustainability and real estate are. Um, you know, I've, I've been had tons of fun working with Lindsay on various projects and Kira and I did a panel together. Um, so we all help each other. Um, and so Michael Chang, who has um, my job at Host Hotels, who came from Walmart, sort of founded their um, supplier work to try to figure out what the heck was happening with their suppliers along in Host Hotels' supply chain. And he shared that work with me. And then I adapted it for office. So going from hospitality to office, just to get a sense of what the heck our suppliers are doing. I mean, that's where most of the carbon impacts are, right? Is in the supply chain, not to mention human rights um, issues. You know, we're unlikely I think, given the kind of business that we run to have a human rights issue amongst the killer employee base, but it's it's far more likely to happen amongst various contractors, construction, janitorial, parking, security. Um, and, you know, what do we know about that? So um, what we did starting in 18 and then continue the work through 19 and now is identify what are called your critical tier one suppliers. So tier one suppliers are anybody that you are, you know, paying directly for services. Um, and then the critical ones are the ones where if they go, um, you know, out of business, then it's going to be a direct impact on your operations. So that's, you know, for us, it's janitorial, security, parking, landscape, and engineering. And so then we reach out to all those suppliers and say, hey, are you measuring your energy use? Are you measuring water? Do you have a human rights policy? Do you have any quality control over what you do? I mean, just basic stuff and seeing what we got back. It's all um, available on the Kilroy website. It was really interesting. Our suppliers are a lot more sophisticated on um, the social side, on human rights and um, issues around that and diversity than they are around the environmental, which I think those of you who are from real estate 
find interesting because real estate, I think is very much the opposite. Real estate figured out the environmental side and is just now trying to get its arms around the social side. Um, and then the idea is to work with those suppliers to improve. So we sent everybody recommendations as to how, what we'd like to see. So if somebody said they weren't tracking energy, we recommend that they start, that kind of thing. Um, and we'll go from there. Um, and now we're gonna extend that to the um, development uh, suppliers this year. So Kilroy both owns and develops property. So that's gonna be architects, engineers, um, general contractors, that kind of thing. So it's been really exciting and illuminating. And I wish more people did it because we're already seeing folks saying, oh yeah, well, energy is sure, I, I can start measuring that. So we're already seeing changes. When you ask the questions, change really happens. And it's something that real estate has been really slow to in comparison to like electronics or even apparel. Yeah, I love I love the supply chain work. When I was at WeWork, it was one of the most elucidating processes to go through some of the work that we were doing to understand where our biggest uh, carbon impacts were. Because I think part of what I love about it is that people always have in their head their own sense of what the thing is that they buy that has the biggest carbon impact. And it's usually wrong. And you don't know that. <laughs> And, I, and I, you know, people would come up to me in my first couple of months in the job and say, oh, isn't it, you know, it's def it's got to be wood or it's got to be glass or it's got to be aluminum. And I would always say, like, you know, it's a great theory, but it turns out you need some really, like, good data and some professionals to look at that data and mm -hmm. uh, figure out the answer to that question. I can't wait to get back to you. And we, you know, we made a bar graph and we got the data back and looked at it and was really helpful, um, but building professionals, I think because we hear lots of stories about whether it's aluminum or other things, we kind of assume we know um, where our biggest impacts are. Uh, but you know, it's just like, you gotta get, the, it is really helpful to start to- It really is. Attention. So the other piece of that for us is uh, understanding the carbon in our construction materials. So a tool came out um, in late 2019 called EC3, which is the Embodied Carbon in Construction Calculator. And it's the first time we've really had insight, so exciting, into like actually what, when we build a building, where all the carbon is and what we can do about it. And so that's gonna be the other sort of major piece complementing um, all the on-site carbon work is really dealing with all the materials because that's really the major impact in our supply chain. And, in, and honestly, real estate has blithely for the last however many years been like, well, you know, as long as I have some recycled content in there and meet that regional sourcing threshold, I'm doing carbon in the construction materials. And the answer is there's so much more that can be done for no extra money or effort or project, you know, delivery time impacts. Um, and we're just leaving all of that carpet on the table. And so that's the next thing that I'm excited to work on. Yes. And let this be a teaser that I am sure we will have some of the EC3 uh, creators uh, on our podcast because they are uh, there are definitely some women leading that effort and I'm really excited to talk more about it so um, thank you and they're all fantastic they're all yes. fantastic yeah it, it's also been interesting to me to watch the green building world in some ways maybe was a bit ahead of the curve as an industry and in starting to tackle environmental issues but um, you know, in our own way, maybe not even ahead of the curve, but we kind of started off doing it. And now we're getting to the point where a lot of other industries like apparel are, have created tools that become useful to us, you know, in a way mm -hmm. that we, we uh, can mm -hmm. sort of circle back on. Um, cool. Okay. Well, I'm excited for the supply chain work. Um, so maybe that leads us into a, 
a part of the conversation that we really want to ask you about um, because it feels like you are very much at the cutting edge, which is how do you think the movement is doing right now? Do you see yourself as a part of a movement? Is that something you identify with? How would you define it? And, and like, how, how is it, how's it going? Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, it's, I mean, up until all this coronavirus insanity and really over the last 18 months that the environmental movement was really picking up steam. Like we were getting there. I hope we are still getting there. You know, the investors are finally caring about this and the ratings agencies are finally caring about this. And we were getting a lot of great global leadership and Greta was out there every day. And, you know, we had the youth really excited. And so I really feel like there's a major thing happening right now. Um, and I, I very much, you know, felt, feel a part of it. Um, absolutely. I mean, it's been really, really exciting over the last, I'd say six months, at least twice a week. I am talking to other real estate companies that are that are saying, oh my goodness, I really need to start my sustainability program. How do I start? I'm having those conversations all the time. So this is not no longer something that can be ignored, frankly. So that's been, it's been really, really wonderful. Um, and I really hope we don't lose this momentum as we sort of are roiling from what our current situation is going to be doing to ourselves and the economy. Um, but it's been a, it's been really, really exciting. One of the things that I talk about with my colleagues is that on the day-to-day -day level, the work is not so different than it was three years ago. I'm still doing contracting for lighting retrofits and for more solar and putting in EV charging stations and that kind of thing. But yet it all feels so exciting because um, it has so much more importance on the world stage, um, especially as, um, the insurance companies are starting to figure out and starting to ask questions. I mean, this is all becoming really, really relevant and very bottom line. Um, and that's been really fun. Um, well, so you've been around, you've been involved in this for about a decade, you were saying. Um, is this where you thought we would be in 2020? Um, I guess accepting the coronavirus moment <laughs> in terms of the arc that you were just describing, you know, about how things were a few years ago and how the momentum has, you know, picked up in the last few years. I mean, do you think this is, what does that kind of look like to you? I'm disappointed that it's taking this long um, because man, for the first seven years, it just felt like we were, you know, writing sustainability reports and throwing them into the abyss. Um, so <laughs> I'm, I'm disappointed that it's taken up till now to have it be very, very relevant and very, very urgent. Mm -hmm. It's taking, you know, extreme weather events that are horrifically disruptive to a lot of people's lives um, to... Uh, to sort of drive all of this home, um, which I was hoping it would happen before it being the global climate movement getting going, especially in real estate. I was hoping this would happen before now. I was hoping we would be a little more proactive and not so much, oh my God, everything's flooding. I guess I'm supposed to be doing something about that. Um, but it's better than, you know, sticking our heads in the sand now. So I'll take it. Um, but no, it, we're, we're behind where I'd hoped we would be back when I started in 2010. Yeah, I, I, um, I, I guess I'm thinking about this progress in these different ways, especially the, there's the, there's the design side of it. There's the construction side, there's the operation side. Do you feel like one has been, uh, lagging more than the others? Do you see it that way? Even? Yeah. I feel like the design side showed up first, at least in America. And so we've known how to design really high performing buildings for a very long time. I feel like the design community has traditionally had quite a few communication gaps 
with building owners that have prevented that knowledge from being more widely implemented. But the fact is that, you know, we're at a point where most large new buildings being built in the US in major cities are being built to lead. So the design side is there. The construction side is honestly, uh, not, not to say that construction folks haven't been working on sustainability for a long time, but the EC3 tool that we were talking about earlier is a game changer. And I wish this had been around five years ago. So we've been building very carbon intensive um, buildings for a very, very long time. Um, and also I was expecting the construction community to be better at things like the red list. I mean, the red list isn't a new concept and yet very, very few people know how to implement it. The fact that I can't call any of the, you know, really high profile general contractors I have and just check the, check the please make this a red list free project. Um, you know, in the same way I can check the please give me 20% recycled content or regional or whatever. Um, the fact that that's still not possible um, is frustrating, but I, I hope it changes. And then on the owner's side, um, yeah, a lot of owners really are still having to be dragged kicking and screaming to the table. Um, there's more and more people with my job every year. Um, so it's, it's certainly growing, but it's still growing slowly. It also depends a lot on the kind of owner we're talking about. So I want to be super clear that um, at Kilroy, which is uh, an operator and owner and developer of mostly office properties, we have it the easiest of everybody, right? We have the easiest access to our data. We're in the best markets with tenants who actually care about sustainability. Um, you know, if you own a bunch of, you know, independently operated campgrounds, you know, all over the, you know, all over rural America, like it's really hard to get any of the data you would need to even do anything. And the folks that own those kind of assets really don't want to have to stand up and be counted because they won't do very well. From a business standpoint, I can't say that I don't understand where they're coming from, although hopefully there's a little more apples to apples comparisons that we'd be able to do. So, uh, so yeah, real estate owners have not been super fast to embrace this the way the design community has. I mean, I'm really glad to see that the construction community is stepping up. Yeah, it's interesting for our listeners who don't maybe have to know about all of the intricacies of uh, REITs and owner-occupied, owner-owning, developing plus operating versus owning and developing versus just developing all of the differences in actors in the commercial real estate market and what they care about, what they don't care about. I feel like we could do a whole podcast just on understanding yes, that. Sure. Um, I've, I've done entire green build presentations on just explaining real estate. So when you actually, you said earlier about what should somebody go into going into sustainable building? No, like just the basics of real estate, please know the difference between a full service gross and a triple net owner know the difference between somebody who's a merchant builder versus a long-term hold. It makes all the difference in the universe to whether or not projects get done, the answers to those kind of questions. Yeah. Yeah. It's so true. It's just, it's so important. And it's so important if you're, you know, maybe you're interviewing for a job because you really want to get involved in a particular type of action in the green building industry and you don't understand that the job you're applying for doesn't actually get to make those kinds of decisions. You know, I, I think that oh, yes all the time oh, um, and it's a great way for me of getting a sense of whether people know like what the, you know how real estate works is like you know um or do you actually get to make a decision about putting solar on the roof or not yeah. <laughs> like that kind of thing um but yeah. you're an operator not an owner 
yeah, yeah, yeah. And like, who are the operators and how does that work? You know, anyway, that that's a, um, a fun one to know about. And, uh, and hopefully we'll be able to educate people a little bit more about that if, if they're not familiar. Um, okay, well, so then I guess I'm curious if you have any other thoughts about areas where you would like to see more progress, places that you think that are not acting fast enough. I feel like we've been talking about this basically with, I mean, carbon neutrality commitments deserves to be said a million times, especially while we're talking to you. Um, <laughs> and, I, you know, supply chain work as well. But where do you, what do you think? think need what do you want people to hear that maybe are not uh focused as much on on uh, moving as fast as as you are um right so it's two things um one is getting um for those who don't work at purely sustainability companies really working to break down the silos between other departments so one of the things i love about my sustainability program at kilroy is that everybody works on it you know legal it human resources, risk management, and I talk all the time, financial reporting. Um, it doesn't work without sort of everybody working on it. You can't just hire a person and stick them you know, in a cubicle with a laptop and expect an award-winning sustainability program. Um, it really has to get everybody on board. So that would be the other one thing um, to really think about. The other thing is climate risk. Um, we are really nervous still about um, understanding um, and disclosing in any meaningful way climate risks um, in our portfolios across real estate. No one has yet done it. Um, no one has yet put a dollar value on physical climate risk. This is the amount of physical damage we think that we might sustain under a two degree scenario analysis. Um, there, there is a real estate company that said they'll do it by the end of this year and I can't wait, um, but we're not doing that. And it is already getting to be late. On that, I mean, we are. Um, you know, I don't have any properties on the Eastern Seaboard, but those who do, and not to say that they're not working on this, um, but you know, climate change risks are happening right now. It's not like oh, let's model out for ten years. It's like no, right now, hurricanes are happening, Boston Harbor floods, you know, all this stuff. And so, as an industry, there are leaders, absolutely, but as an industry, we are really behind where we need to be. Um, to uh, to protect you know our assets and ourselves. Absolutely, um, that brings up another question that I wanted to ask you about, which is, you have a communication device called the Neff Letter, and I wondered if you could <laughs> tell us a little bit about why that came into being and who you talked to through that and what that's all about. Sure. So um, one of the things that I think drives the fact that neither people who own real estate or spend time in real estate or are in the investor NGO side think of real estate in terms of climate change is because nobody thinks about buildings in terms of climate change. They're not, we're not good at thinking about them because they're always around and they're quiet and they, they're not like a car you get into. They're not the food you put in your mouth. Um, and so I, I find this very, very frustrating. And so I did a TEDx talk um, on this subject back in late 2018 and um, and that had gotten some traction and there was an interest in sort of more of that which was to say something that married um, my sustainability on the job with my experience with sustainability um, at home and trying to implement it here and also a place to talk about times we failed. Um, I had the experience of going to Copenhagen for the C40 summit, the global group of mayors and megacities making their climate commitments. Um, and I was talking about the fact that 
what they love talking about over there is clean construction equipment. So like your cement mixer and your forklift and your whatever are all entirely electric. And I was like, we don't even have this concept in America. Like, I don't even know what you're talking about. Looking forward to learning. And they're like, wow, you're so great at talking about failure. We would never do that here. Is that an American thing? And I was like, I think it's just a Sarah thing. <laughs> so it's... <laughs> So, um, so yeah, it's also a time to talk about uh, it's okay to try hard and not get all the way there. Um, and also, I think sustainability can get a little heavy. You know, we're dealing with a lot of um, heavy stuff in terms of the planet and health and buildings and climate. Um, and I think it's also nice to have a little bit of humorous break on the subject. So that's so um, that is where the TEDx talk came from, was sort of bridging the communication gap between buildings, health, and the environment for the general public. And then the Neff letter came out of a desire from some people of more of that. Um, and so that is where the Neff letter was born. It's been great. It's like doubled in its readership um, since I launched it. Please, you can sign up at sarahneff.com. Um, and it's been, uh, it's been really interesting. Um, I think people, uh, I think people enjoy hearing, you know, about my strange quirks in terms of things I care about in sustainability. Like when I had a few free hours in New York, like what did I do with it? I didn't go go see a Broadway show. I went and toured a Blackwater facility and drank the water at the end. Um, so as I loved that. I loved that one. That was awesome. <laughs> it was really fun. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I just love the vulnerability side of it too. I think that's it's honestly one of the things I'm hoping that we do with this podcast is that, you know, vulnerability and the ability to admit when you don't succeed at something or when you don't know something mm -hmm. comes from a point of knowing a lot of stuff and having done a lot of stuff and feeling very comfortable with, you know, what you do know and what you don't know. And I, it, it always pains me when our leaders don't uh, show us enough of that uh, because it makes me think they don't know what they're doing. And so I just always trust that you know what you're doing because you're so willing to say that you don't when you don't know something. It's also just hard to translate work to home, right? I mean, I've been specifying sustainable furniture at the office for years. And then when like, you know, a sad piece of Ikea furniture finally broke and I needed a new bookcase, like it was, it was impossible, you know? <laughs> Like at home, to, even I though I do it for a living and I know a lot about sustainable furniture and yet trying to make that work for something that shows up in your house is much more difficult than it should be. So Totally, totally. <laughs> Too much of a disconnect. Too much. Okay, our last question today um, is really hopefully a fun one. Who are you most inspired by these days? Um, what? Where are you looking for leadership and um, mm -hmm. where are you finding it? So uh, I get asked this question a lot of how do you stay like on the pulse of what's happening next in sustainability? And I always give the same answer, um, which is I look to what my Australian friends are doing. Um, the Australians for a variety of reasons um, are, uh, I think at least five years ahead of where we are in the Americas on sustainable real estate um, comes, there's a lot of reasons, you know, that when they hosted the Olympics and all the building owners really drive that movement. Um, and so whatever they're working on is what I know I will be working on in three to five years. So that's, you know, when we start focusing on health, it's because they had started focusing on health and that's where, you know, the carbon work started coming. And then that's where, how I knew to start focusing on the carbon of construction materials. I mean, they were talking about that at GCAS in 2018 and EC3 didn't come out here 
until for another year, right? So that is always who I look to. And they do um, just the most amazing stuff over there. So um, I make sure to always stay on top of what the Green Property Council of Australia does. Um, they have um, a new head. Um, uh, Jorge works there as a big, as a, as a close friend. Um, and I just have infinite respect for how they're able to constantly push themselves on sustainability. Um, and there's too many companies over there to name off the top of my head. Mervec does great work. Charles does great work. DGP does great work. AMN does great work. So um, yeah, love to see what they do because they absolutely inspire me and hint to me what I'm supposed to be doing next. Cool. All right. Well, we are out of time. So that is it. Thanks so much, Sarah. It's been awesome having you here. Thank you so much for having me. This was tons of fun. Yeah, we could talk for so much longer, but we we're could. really like we're trying for everybody <laughs> to give you a reasonable amount of time to take out from your day to listen to our podcast. So we're going to wrap it up. Uh, thanks for joining us this week on Women in Sustainability, Design the Future. Thanks again to Acuity for hosting and to all of our listeners. Please leave us a review on Apple. It really matters and it helps people find us and we will see you next week.